0: What's stopping you, 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 you from becoming a Catholic? Why can't women become priests? one 833 ewtn
1: I don't understand why I have to earn salvation.
0: One eight three three two eight eight three nine eight six. 833 288 Why do I need to confess my sins to a priest? What's stopping you? You, 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 you? This is Call to Communion with Dr. David Anders on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Well, looky there. We made it to Friday. How about that? Welcome again to Call to Communion here on EWTN. It's the program for our non-Catholic brothers and sisters. If you've got a question about the Catholic faith, we are here to answer that question today. And my personal recommendation is call early in the hour because on Fridays, phones uh, tend to get a little bit busier than normal. And uh, we want to get your questions so that so that you don't have to wait all weekend to to get that question answered. Here is our phone number, 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. If you're listening to us outside of North America, please dial 1-205-271-2985. And, of course, you can always send us an email. We'll get to one of those in a second here. The address, CTC. At EWTN.com, CTC at EWTN.com. Charles Beery is our producer. Matt Kabinski is our phone screener. Jeff Burson handles social media for us. If you want to ask a question via YouTube or Facebook, we are streaming live right there and right now. You can just put your question in the comments box if you would, and then Jeff will see that. He'll shoot it to us here in Studio One. I'm Tom Price along with Dr. David Anderson. Tom, Anders. how are you today? Very well. How are you?
2: Oh, you know, uh, doing decent, a little bit on the sleepy side, because my Havanese decided to bark uproariously all night long at the rain and kept us
0: all awake. But... You were uh, pointing out at one point that your Havanese uh, dog barks like a, a smoke alarm with a low battery. Yep, where like,
2: yep, yeah. yep, yep <laughs> all night long,
0: yes. <laughs> Lovely. So uh, here is an email that we received from Rob in Oregon. Dear Dr. Andrews, I, res- I hear two different versions of what happened during the Reformation. Protestants say the, Catholic- <coughs> me. Protestants say the Catholics were filled with joy to be freed from the shackles of Rome, finally able to read the Bible for themselves. Others say Catholics during this time loved the church and their parish priests, but were forcibly converted by the threat of seeing their families put to the sword by reformers, so can you shed some light on this, please? God bless, Rob in Oregon.
2: Yeah, sure. Thank you. I appreciate the question. <clears throat> so, uh, the, the Reformation is an enormously complex historical period, and people have been writing about it for 500 years, obviously. And, and modern scholars have different points of view, and you'll get you'll get a variety of theses to explain this that aspect of the Reformation or the thing in totality. Um, one of the trends that has been very popular, say, probably really going back 80 years in Reformation scholarship, is not just to look at the polemics of um, uh, you know the reformers, the, the major reformers, the theologians, the, your, your Luthers, your Calvins, your Zwingleys, and Bootser, and Bollinger, and Cranmer, and, and these fellows, or Menno Simons, but to try to get what's called uh, social history, and look at the lives and the records of everyday normal people and what they left behind. And Uh, My experience with this and this is I spent a lot of time in this field when I was doing my own dissertation my own doctoral work in Reformation history. I spent a lot of uh, research did a lot of research into the social history around Reformation Geneva during the era of Calvin and uh, What you find is a lot of times the experience of the common person is very different from the way it is portrayed in the polemics and that shouldn't surprise us I mean if you look at contemporary American society for example um, let's let's take a, a say a Democrat politician and a Republican politician, okay, and let each of them describe what they think the average American experiences and wants. <laughs> You're going to get very different accounts of what the quote-unquote average American wants or needs or expects or experiences in in American civilization, because their narratives are crafted by polemical necessity. They're, yeah, they're trying yeah. to win at the ballot box, and they're going to, you know, craft their narrative. And they're also trying to influence public opinion in that way. Uh, personally, I think that happened in the Reformation in a very big way, and I'll give you some of the reasons that I think that. So Luther described his own inner life, his own—and this is, like, everybody agrees on this, Catholic, Protestant, doesn't matter who you are, it's pretty much in a consensus that Luther, Luther had a neurotic personality— He suffered a great deal emotionally. He was depressed, maybe bipolar. He described this condition himself as his Anfektun. It's the German word for anxiety or depression. And it really was the driving psychological force in his his, uh, Reformation polemics. He experienced his own Reformation as a great liberation from this burden of guilt. And then he took that psychological experience as the framework to interpret the gospel to interpret the history of christianity and to interpret his own contemporary society and so in the and that that became sort of standard polemical language if you read john calvin for example he he grabs onto this and he will take luther's language and describe the experience of catholicism as guilt-ridden and neurotic and you know, people that are lost in superstition, and they have no assurance of salvation, and this, you know, there's a burden of conscience that's unrelieved by the papacy. That kind of language you find in Calvin's polemics as well, and it becomes kind of the standard narrative. You get a lot of that across the reformers. What I found really interesting, however, in my own research, I I looked at uh, testimony, court testimony, uh, ecclesiastical court testimony, letters, uh, popular sermons, these kinds of things of the average Joe living in Geneva. And what I found to be the case, and France, too, for that matter, what I found to be the case was their consciences were very fine, thank you very much. (laughs) And the big issue that the Genevans had in the Reformation, first with the Catholic Church and then with Calvin, was they were sick to death of foreigners telling them what to do. And so, first it was the prince... Bishop of Geneva, who was a member of the House of Savoy and didn't even live in town, and they had a great deal of resentment against this Catholic clergyman who actually had civil power in Geneva, and so part of the motive for the Reformation in Geneva was to was political independence from the House of Savoy. Uh-huh. Um, and then when Calvin came in and began to exercise authority ecclesiastically over the people of Geneva, tried to impose a catechism and a confession of faith and to examine them for their worthiness for communion, their attitude was... We got rid of one pope. We don't want a second one. <laughs> and and uh, they actually made contradicting the ministers a civil crime in Geneva. You could you could be jailed or punished or sanctioned for say contradicting Calvin's Institutes of the Christian Religion. And uh, my favorite quote was the woman who was called before the ecclesiastical authorities, and she said, "Do we have to believe if the new pastors tell us that there's no water in the Rhone River?" <laughs> you know that gets to the
0: the it, it sure wasn't does. the tormented
2: conscience yeah
0: that that was troubling them fascinating appreciate that thanks so much for your email in a moment we'll get to the phones at 833 288 EWTN call now it's called a communion here on EWTN with Dr. David Andrews. we are uh, looking for your phone call right now at 833 288 EWTN that's 833 833- We're going to get to the phones in just a moment. Hey, it's a big day around here at EWTN because today we celebrate the Feast of St. Clair. And as you may know, she is the patron saint of television. We can relate. EWTN's religious catalog has a beautiful way to remember her every day. Whether for yourself or a gift for a loved one, we have a sterling silver medal featuring an image of St. Clair on the front, with St. Francis on the back. Both sides have a, an inscription that says, Pray for Us. It is a beautiful sterling silver, St. Clair, and St. Francis dual metal on an 18-inch sterling chain. The metal is round, about an inch in diameter, and as I say, comes on an 18-inch sterling silver chain. Check it out. It is really, really nice, and it's available right now at EWTN. RC.com. Buy Catholic, shop Catholic. EWTNRC.com. Look for that uh, sterling silver, St. Clair, and St. Francis dual medal. If you're ready now, let's go to the phones at 833 288 EWTN. We begin today with Chet in Houston, listening on the Great Guadalupe Radio, AM 1430. Hey, Chet, what's on your mind today, sir?
1: Hey, good afternoon. I have a question. It's frequently stated that the New Testament is mostly, uh, quotes the Septuagint, and I've heard that several times. I've read it. But I've never heard of any um, evidence towards that. Like, for example, is it the phraseology of the passage or a particular word when you compare it to other, I guess, manuscripts or whatever? But how is it that we—what uh, what evidence points us that the uh, New Testament— it's mostly the Septuagint.
2: And, yeah, and then and the follow-up would be, do you have any reference? Sure, sure, it? sure, certainly. So the way you do it is you take your your Greek edition of the New Testament, and you take your Greek edition of the Old Testament, namely the Septuagint, mm-hmm. and then you take your, your Masoretic Hebrew text of the Old Testament, and you lay them down in parallel, and you read them. And you, you look at the Greek New Testament, and you see when it quotes the Old Testament... Uh, does it align with the Septuagint or does it align with the Hebrew? And you just have to do that verse by verse. I mean, that's 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 that's, that's the only way to do it. You just go plodding through. Yeah. And, you know, all, any technical commentary, you know, the Anchor Bible or something like that, is going to go into those kinds of details, and it's a scholarly task, and it's a grind, and you just have to do it one verse at a time. But, you know, Catholic polemicists love to throw that kind of stuff up on the internet, so there's any number of websites that will that will document, show you you know, out of the some three hundred Old Testament quotes in the New Testament, something probably like two two hundred of them at least come directly out of the Septuagint. It would be pedantic in the extreme for me to sit here and enumerate all two hundred citations on the air. <laughs> yeah. But I'll give you one that's extremely important. Okay. Right, how about Matthew one twenty three? Uh, Behold, the virgin shall conceive. Right. That is that is famously a quote from the Septuagint version of Isaiah seven fourteen versus the Hebrew version, where where the virginity of the young maiden in question is. Not apparent, not okay. not denied, but not apparent, right? Yeah. So, and this that the New Testament authors make a great deal of theological hey, obviously, out of that translation sure. difference. So, sure. but we could, you know, like I said, we could go through two hundred of these line by line, but I'm not going to do that here.
0: <laughs> Chad, thanks so much for your call. That opens up a line for you right now at eight three three two eight eight EWTN. We have several lines open eight three three. 288 3986. Call to communion on this Friday afternoon here on EWTN. Uh, we have a, a question here from John, who listens to us on Modern Day Radio in Portland, Oregon. John says, I need help as I try to evangelize my inactive adult Catholic sons who have quite a superficial knowledge of the faith, but they think of themselves as expert in the use of language. So the expression, Work Out Your Salvation in Fear and Trembling, is among the ideas that lead them to conclude that, well, if that's what the Catholic Church suggests, it's involved in reigniting their religious practice, so they're going to continue enjoying a life not filled with anxiety, worry, and, quote, fear of the Lord. So I'm looking for suggestions to help them understand the concepts behind these kind of religious beliefs. And uh, thank you, and that is from John. Yeah, thanks. I really appreciate the question. So, the, the idea of
2: working out your salvation in fear and trembling, in the larger Catholic tradition, what it means to work out our salvation is that we uh, attempt to live the life of virtue in imitation of the character of Christ. And that, that's, that's basically the task of Christian life. And uh, the Catholics have put a lot of thought into what the life of virtue looks like and a very authoritative account of that, of that journey comes to us in the writings of St. Thomas Aquinas in the Summa Theologica, where he lays out the, the, the cardinal and the theological virtues that define the life of the just man. And uh, none of them per- involves particularly involves the experience of neurotic fear, right? Um, they are things like prudence, justice, fortitude, temperance, faith, hope, and charity. Uh, and explicitly the Church teaches that the life of faith and virtue is the reasonable life, the life of reason, the rational life. Uh-huh. Uh, St. Paul actually speaks about your your rational act of worship uh, as opposed to a sort of neurotic or superstitious form of worship. And so if a person's religiosity is characterized by a craven fear, it's not possible that they're going to be behaving prudently, right? And so that just that just doesn't accord with the Catholic understanding of the moral life. Fortunately, Catholics are not fundamentalist Protestants. And so we we don't take a single verse from the Bible out of context and at face value and just assume that that face value reading is the one that's the most important or the most salient to the way that I've got to live my life. If, if we did, I suppose we'd all be... You know, stoning disobedient children and subjecting suspicious women to bizarre tests trials by ordeal for adultery. I mean, the Old yeah. Testament mandates some pretty bizarre stuff, yeah. and like we don't we don't do that. I mean, that's no. not how we live our relationship to the Bible. So, mm-hmm. um, if you want to have a Catholic understanding of the moral life, uh, you know, in action, you look to the saints. Um, and saints come in all flavors and personality types. So have we got saints that were neurotic nutjobs? You bet, because they're human beings. And we got saints that were just masters of, uh, of dispassionate, uh, you know, Vulcan-like serenity. <laughs> we have those too. My, my favorite, of course, being St. Thomas himself, who, of course, favorite story about St. Thomas famously, um, well, two favorite stories. Thomas allegedly was uh, in class in the Dominican school, uh, uh, uh studio one day and, um, uh, the brothers came in and they said he wasn't a priest yet. They said, Brother Thomas, Brother Thomas, there's a flying ass outside. And Thomas heaves his ponderous bulk out of his chair and wanders over and looks out the window. And they all die laughing at him, you know, but for his at his gullibility. And he turns without cracking a smile, looks at them and says, I would sooner believe that an ass can fly than that a Dominican could lie.
0: Ooh, kaboom. <laughs> and my other one, and this
2: is more to the point, was... Yes. Uh, they once told Thomas. They said, uh, "Brother Thomas, brother, or Father Thomas at this time, Father Thomas, Father Thomas, there is a nun down the road who levitates when she prays. You got to come see this marvel." He says, "All right, let's go see it." So off they go down the road, and uh, they walk in the convent. And sure enough, there she is, you know, four feet off the ground. Thomas looks at her and says, "She has big feet." <laughs> Whereupon she comes out of her trance and she's indignant. Thomas exhorts her to seek greater humility. And goes back to his prayers and his books. He was unflappable, you know. And he was a saint. That means he attained the height of holiness in the Christian life. St. Francis, on the other hand, he was bouncing all over the place, you know, wry, sprite little man, you know, forever joyful and anxious and full of
0: vif and vim and completely different personality. Yeah, totally. Well, thank you so much uh, for your email there, John. Back to the phones now at 833-288-EWTN. Miles is in St. Paul, Minnesota, listening online, EWTN.com. Hey, Miles, what's on your mind today, sir?
1: Hello, Dr. Anders and Tom Price. I appreciate it. Um, I have kind of a comment on an objection that I've heard that I don't know if I've heard on your show, is that well, Protestants might say that, oh, you guys make too big of a deal about uh, Mary, because, you know, after the Gospels, you can see she's not even really mentioned. She's very obscure after the Gospels. My comment on that might be, is that, as we can hear on the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, blessed are the meek. Well, is there anyone who's ever been more meek, more humble than Our Lady? Is this how she wanted it to be, It's to make herself small, to make herself nothing? And to be in obscurity because of her humbleness, um, uh, and part of her reward in heaven, or her great reward in heaven, is maybe because of this.
2: Yeah, yeah. thanks. So. I really appreciate the question. Uh, I like what you're, where you're going with this, but I would, I would have a different approach. <clears throat> if someone said, well, I don't need to take Mary that seriously because, you know, she's not mentioned outside the Gospels. My, my first thought was, well, neither is the life of Christ if we read the, the, what, 13 canonical letters of St. Paul, Paul says almost nothing about the life of Christ from his birth to his passion. Mm. Almost nothing. And he alludes to the teaching of Christ, but, you know, rarely quotes it directly, and certainly not at length. So for, for St. Paul, it is the office of Christ— and uh, his self-sacrifice uh, at Calvary and resurrection that are the, that are the salient points. But mm-hmm. as to Jesus' actual biography, we have none of it in Paul's letters. I mean, virtually none of it. Yeah. So are you going to dismiss the life of Christ because Paul doesn't really talk about it? Neither do the other epistles, neither do the Hebrews, neither do the St. Peter or St. James. They, they don't really deal with the content of the Gospels. Uh, so do we conclude that the content of the Gospels is irrelevant to Christian life? I think not. All right, so what, what, what are those epistles doing? Well, the epistles were almost all occasional letters, meaning, you know, St. Paul's trucking along in his apostolic ministry, and he finds out, oh my gosh, the Corinthians have got a big problem. They got people sleeping with their in-laws. They got people getting drunk at Holy Communion. Mm. Uh, they got folks, you know, lining up into factions and tearing each other's hair out. Uh, they got people, you know, falling all over the place, speaking in tongues and worship and not doing anything edifying. I need to write a letter and correct all that. And so he sits down, he writes a letter, and he addresses these specific issues because that's what they're dealing with. Mm -hmm. Or Hebrews is dealing with the problem of uh, Christian apostasy to Judaism. So what does he do? He writes a letter about the problem of Christian apostasy to Judaism. Why would you expect the epistles to be something other than what they are, namely occasional letters to deal with particular problems in particular churches? Why were the Gospels written? Well, St. Luke tells us. Because... A comprehensive account of the life of Christ did not exist, not in his area of the world. So he set out to write one. So the Gospels are the ones that present us with the biographical information about these characters.
0: That's not what the epistles do. All right. Miles, thanks so much uh, for your call. Call to Communion here on EWTN. We have one line open right now at 833-288-EWTN. If you have a question for Dr. David Anders, 833 833- 288 Mike is a first-time caller in Seattle, listening on the great Sacred Heart Radio, one of our longtime partners. Hey there, Mike, what's on your mind today, sir?
1: Hey, doing good. Yeah, I'm here on AM 750 Sacred Heart. Shut up, to Ron. Um, I just had a question about the end times. I started kind of having informal conversations with a Protestant friend, and he's asking me, You know, what I think about the end times and when Jesus is coming and thousand-year reigns and pre-tribulation. I don't really know what he's talking about. Do you guys have some resources I could look at what the Church teaches about those things? Uh,
2: Yep, absolutely. So uh, many of the topics that your friend raised, the Catholic Church says nothing about because they're not part of divine revelation. It's sort of like taking a strong opinion on whether Jesus prefers pepperoni or sausage pizza, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, it's just, like, not relevant to the issue. It's not part of the Gospel. And um, I guess as an observant Jew, he probably didn't eat a lot in the way of sausage pizza. Probably not, but, probably not. But nevertheless, um, the, all this business about the rapture and pre-tribulation and post-tribulation, these are Protestant theological categories that are not found in sacred Scripture, and they're not really part of the Catholic tradition. So I don't, we don't have an opinion on them any more than we have an opinion on, say, the difference between Mahayana and Theravada Buddhism. Not our tradition. They're raising questions that aren't part of Revelation that we are not interested in. I mean, you know, except for historical reasons. Yeah. So there is no rapture. There is no rapture. And therefore, the question of pre-, post-, mid-trib rapture is irrelevant. It's irrelevant. It's not part of the Catholic tradition. Um, as far as what we believe about the end times, there are going to be some. There are going to be some. And the, the big important event in the end times will be the return of Christ in glory, the resurrection of the body from the dead, the last judgment where Christ judges the living and the dead, and the final destination of heaven or hell for all souls. That, that Those are the biggies, and that's what you need to know. And as far as what is the authoritative source to read about this, that would be the Catechism of the Catholic Church. Read this last section uh, on the Creed concerning the return of Christ in glory in the end times, and you'll, that will tell you what Catholics believe. Now, beyond that, There are individual Catholics that believe all kinds of wild stuff about the end end days, and they don't all agree with one another. And so you will find Catholics that will tell you, well, you know, this apparition said this, and this private revelation said that, and this mystic over here said this other thing, and they can hold that as their private theological opinion, but it's nothing to do with the dogmatic teaching of the Church. The dogmatic teaching of the Church, which is the heart of the tradition, is simply that Christ will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and that there will be uh, a, uh, a general resurrection, and the final destination of souls will be heaven or purgatory. I mean, excuse me, heaven or hell.
0: Yeah. So let's uh, let's go with what the church says. Right. Let's stick there, with the church. There you go, Eric. Eric, thank you so much uh, for your question. That is not Eric. And that I, was I Mike. I like to point Mike. out,
2: to folks, that Saint Paul said that we're in the last days, and he said that two thousand years ago. Yeah. And he said it when he was in the early church. We may still be in the early church. Sure. Maybe Jesus comes back tomorrow. Maybe he comes back in 100,000 years. We do not know.
0: Mike, thanks again for your call. In a moment, we're going to go to Eric. Now we got it in order. Eric is a first-time caller from Tampa. We'll be talking with Eric. We'll also be talking with uh, Michael in Cincinnati, Danielle, and uh, a few more, too, I think. We can probably get in your call right now at 833-288-EWTN for Call to Communion with Dr. David Anders. Do stay with us. It's called a Communion on this Friday afternoon with Dr. David Andrews. If you have a question for him, uh, you know, anything regarding the Catholic faith, maybe there's something you're just not quite sure about, do give us a call at 833-288-EWTN. If you call right now, we can hopefully get you on today's program, 833-288-3986. Hey, congratulations going out to a longtime member of the EWTN radio family, Holy Family Radio in West Central Ohio, now celebrating their 13th year with EWTN. They serve Lima and Glandorf and Ada and Leipzig. Congratulations to Jeff Compton and his great team there at Holy Family Radio from all of us at EWTN. Let's go back to the phones and talk with Eric, a first-time caller in Tampa, listening online, EWTN.com. Hey, Eric, what's on your mind today, sir?
1: Hi, good afternoon. Um, I had a quick question. This has to do with the various crowns that are mentioned in the New Testament, in particular the crown of life. Um, Dr. Anders, I was hoping you could just shed some light specifically on who the crown of life refers to, because I stumbled upon a, a, a Protestant writing that specified that that's only for martyrs. Um, but I always interpreted that crown of life, crown of life to be for all those who were in the body
2: of Christ. Would, would you be able to shed light on that? Well, yeah, thanks. I, I appreciate the question. So the, the mention of crown of life comes to us from the book of Revelation 2, verse 10. And Christ uh, tells the Church not to be afraid of what it's going to suffer, uh, whether it be prison or even unto death, and those that remain faithful uh, to those Christ will give the crown of life. Now, the Catholic Church does not specify um you know the various medals that might get hung about your person in in glory you know it, it, as if there were we could we had a clear sense of you know various differentiations and stages in glory and that each of them was assigned a rank and we had kind of a an exact catalog of those things and that sounds like what your protestant friend is is alleging he's got this all worked out into a system and he knows exactly where you're going to you know, fall in the hierarchy and what your title will be, that's a level of specificity way beyond anything the Catholic Church asserts. Uh, My own reading of the book of Revelation is that it would be, I think, foolhardy uh, to, um, to take it that way. And Revelation is an incredibly figurative book, and and suffice it to say that we need to persevere to the end, and God will reward us. Christ says He will reward us if we give a cup of cold water to little ones because they belong to Him. And uh, I'm not so much worried about you know the, do I you know what what size crown I get, which particular jewels, and what the title of the thing is. It seems yeah. a bit beyond the point. Yeah. Um, now there is a there is an exegesis of Revelations two ten. I'm not endorsing it, but it exists, it's floating around out there, where Christ says I will give you life as your victor's crown as opposed to, I will give you the crown of life, right? Meaning your eternal life, mm. your eternal life being the reward, the crown as it were, sure. you know, for your for your efforts and perseverance. Uh, that makes a lot of sense to me theologically, whether that's the proper exegesis or not, I don't know. But I, I have some sympathy with that
0: as a as a theme. Eric, thanks so much for your call. Call to communion here on EWTN, our phone number 833-288-EWTN. That's 833 833- Michael listening in Cincinnati on the great Sacred Heart Radio. Hello, Michael. What's on your mind today? Dr.
1: Anders, what a privilege. I live in a community where I'm a fifth-generation German Catholic, both on my mom and my dad's side. Now, we left the Catholic faith in 81. I'm the only one that's returned. I have five younger sisters, although I do have my third sister who's returned, but They're very active in the Vineyard Church and Mennonite, and I've been trying to appeal to what my dad, at 84, has often said common sense is something that brings him to a sense of reality, and I really see divine providence with how we grew up as Catholics in this rural farm community but yet my, even my grandpa didn't even know his own grandparents were buried in the cemetery where I'm from, at St. John the Baptist. So could you give some more light on how common sense and divine providence work hand in hand to bring us into the fullness of the Catholic faith?
2: Yeah, sure. Thanks. I really appreciate the question. So, really central to the Church's understanding of the nature of Revelation and the nature of the moral life, Is that they they accord and fulfill the demands of reason and so all of us have some pretty profound intuitions about the nature of the world that we share with the vast majority of people in spite regardless of our broad philosophical disagreements about esoteric theories uh, when push comes to shove you're gonna get out of the way of the moving bus Right, yeah. you, you might sit there and debate whether the bus is really real, and is the bus an illusion, and you know, kind of even know what's happening outside my own mind, and maybe the bus is just a projection on the inside of my skull by my, you know, various synapses and neurons, and you know, like Kant, am I am I trapped within my own subjectivity? I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm reduced to a kind of idealism. I'm still going to get out of the way of the bus, yeah. whatever my esoteric philosophical <laughs> theory is, and and you you know arguably you could say there are some basic moral intuitions that we all share. Um, I have yet to see the culture that values cowardice, for example, you know. Um, I have yet to see the culture that values, um, say, dissipation. I mean, uh, with some exceptions and some outlier cases, of course, you know, taken into consideration, but there are some sort of bedrock judgments that we make about what it takes to live a decent life, and those would be encompassed in what Catholics call the natural law, what, say, the Chinese would call the Dao, what the Indians would call the Dharma. Um, what are the sort of constituent facts of reality that we need to order our lives according if we're, gonna, if we're gonna live well and do right? Now, a great deal of both philosophy and religion, in my judgment, seems to be an attempt to depart from those, which you want to call them common sense, sort of basic intuitions about the fabric of reality and our mode of knowing. You mentioned the, the Vineyard Church, for example, is one of the ones that you enumerated, and I spent some time in the Vineyard in my own day, and I, I, there, my experience was there could be quite a lot of frenetic emotional hoopla, at least in some of the churches that I frequented. And oftentimes it was intended to sort of take you out of the realm of the ordinary and the, mm. and the, you know, the world of table and chairs and, and husbands and wives and children and grade reports and dirty diapers and all of that into a kind of uh, you know, ecstatic absorption into an emotional experience understood to be the Spirit of God. Uh, someone who has written an outstanding anthropological analysis of that very type of spirituality is the Stanford anthropologist Tanya Lurman. Uh, her book, When God Talks Back, uh, not a Catholic, not a Catholic, I have put that up front, but in terms of an analysis of that kind of what I would regard as superstitious spirituality uh, and the kind of mindset that generates it, I, you're not going to do better. And she actually embedded herself in a vineyard community for a oh, couple really? of years and lived the life, walked the walk, talked the talk, read the books, you know, did the did the thing all as an anthropologist trying to get a, her head wrapped around it from uh-huh. the inside, and that book is uh, is uh, is her Uh, analysis of that experience. Um, It's, uh, in my judgment, and in Lerman's, a lot of it consists in a sort of exaggerated game of make-believe, where uh, the individual stipulates some aspect of their experience. Could be speaking in tongues, could be emotional absorption, could be a thought that passes through their brain, and very much like the pagan uh, uh animist who says you know this tree is my is the spirit of my grandfather the um uh, the modern religion religionist will say when i have this feeling or when i undergo this experience or when i have this state of absorption i stipulate my word not theirs that means that god is talking to me and so when someone said well you know god told me well let's let's unpack that <laughs> phenomenologically what uh-huh. are you talking about when you say that god told you and very often, what it means is, well, you know, when I get this funny feeling in my left elbow, you know, that that's the sign that God's talking. They've just they've just arbitrarily stipulated that in an ad hoc way because it's important to their spirituality to be able to say these kinds of things, and so they've come up with a, this elaborate charade of which they've persuaded themselves mm. that they were all in touch with something supernatural, when in fact, it's it's a it's an elaborate. Charade that they're playing on themselves. Right? Yeah. That's at least my judgment of the way it works. And I've, I've done that. Like I've been guilty of that in my own life. So I, I know from the inside what it feels like. And by contrast, one of the things that attracted me to Catholicism was that that way of being in the world is exhausting. And eventually you get run over by the bus.
0: Yeah.
2: And I saw it happen time and time again. People who threw themselves into an imaginative spirituality where they sort of demanded that the unseen world come down and do their bidding according to the way they fantastically constructed things. And reality just keeps getting in the way. And reality isn't always, but it can be, a very loud teacher. And it was a relief to me to discover that, uh, as uh, G.K. Chesterton once said about Thomas Aquinas, that Catholic philosophy is committed to the proposition that eggs are... Just eggs. So, actually, that would be a good resource to give you, uh, G.K. Chesterton's book on Thomas Aquinas.
0: There you go. Hey, Michael, great question. Thanks so much uh, for your call. We hope that is helpful for you. Call to Communion here on EWTN. Hey, make your plans for a full weekend at this year's EWTN free family celebration. By golly, it starts two weeks from today. Friday, August 25th, right here in Birmingham. You can visit the Shrine of the Most Blessed Sacrament in Huntsville, about an hour away from us, uh, heading north on I-65. You can attend Holy Mass, tour the Shrine, and so much more. And then it's off to the Birmingham Jefferson Convention Complex on Saturday, August 26th, for all of the wonderful family events. Here's what you do. Go to EWTN.com slash family celebration to find out all about it, to register, and it is absolutely free. Do check that out. EWTN.com slash Family Celebration. Did I mention it's free? I think I did. Okay. Let's <laughs> let's go now to Pat in the beautiful Fairhope, Alabama. Love Fairhope. Listening on the great Archangel Radio. Hello, Pat. What's on your mind today?
1: Well, I, I think so much of Dr. Anders. I just think his, what he thinks is absolutely wonderful, and I want to know... If he has read the book, *The End of the Present World and the Mysteries of the Future Life* by Father Charles Armingeon.
2: Thank you so much. I appreciate the question. I am, I am, sort of vaguely familiar with the text. I have, I have to confess, I have not read it. Um, uh, you know, I have I have sort of positive thoughts towards it. I, I think because uh-huh. I believe it was near and dear to the heart of Saint Therese of Lisieux. I think this was a text that was meaningful and powerful really? in her okay. own life. Right. Um, there is a book of Catholic eschatology that I have liked that I, that I have read that I do like, and that is the book *Life Everlasting* by Father Reginald Gary Lagrange. Um, so that's one I often recommend to people when they want a book on Catholic eschatology. Uh, but the one by Almijon, I have not read.
0: Okay. Pat, thanks so much uh, for your call from Fairhope. Here's a question now from Ravek, uh, or Ravek, uh, watching us this afternoon on YouTube. Hey there. Uh, He says, the final incarnation of Vishnu is supposed to destroy all ignorance and usher in a new era. Is there any evidence that Jesus fulfilled this? I'm trying to reconcile the Hindu trinity with Christianity.
2: Yeah, thank you. I really appreciate the question. So let me tell you what I think is the proper way to think about the relationship of Hinduism to Christianity and what I think is the improper way to do it. Okay. All right. I would not look to Hinduism, or Hindu scripture, uh, I don't regard it as sacred scripture, I regard it as historically interesting, and I know that Hindus treat it as sacred scripture, but I, it doesn't possess the quality, in my judgment, that Catholics assign to their Bible, of being divinely inspired and and given to the church for teaching and correction and training and righteousness and so forth. Um, so I regard Hindu scripture, whether Shruti or Smriti, the two categories, as um, the musings of religious philosophers and devotees that reflect the wisdom and experience of that tradition and that culture and the ages. And so it is possible to read through uh, the Hindu scriptures and to derive uh, genuine insights about wisdom and the good life. Uh, I myself uh, have spent... Well, a fair amount of time reading Hindu literature. I, I, I've read the the Gita, and I've read the um, uh, I've read the Upanishads, and I've read the Rigveda, and uh, read a lot of uh, modern Hindu philosophers, and so I, I have some appreciation for it, and I, I recognize that there's good stuff there, and a lot of it accords with Catholic doctrine, all right? Particularly, the apophaticism of the Upanishads is really in line with the negative theology of Catholic mysticism, and I think it's perfectly reasonable to to find those those points of commonality. Now, how do I understand those points of commonality? Why are they common? Is it because, say, Vishnu inspired the seers to write these things? I don't think so. Uh, I think that uh, humanity is one. We all come from the same stock. Uh, We all share a common humanity. And that means we all share... Uh, common psychology, right? not that there aren't differences, there are, of course, but we basically have the same uh, architecture, if you will, in our brains, uh-huh. and, and the way we think about language and truth uh, is grounded in the same neurology, and, and this is what, um, uh, you know, the uh, theoretical linguistics is all about, trying to discern what is the, um, so what's the, the base of all human languages, and you find that it, we have these commonalities because we're basically made out of the same kind of stuff. And we have, you know, the same biology, same reproductive uh, biology, and so we're going to have similar, not identical, but similar family systems and similar experiences in growing up and some of the same kind of existential problems that people face. And these are going to prompt, uh, over time, similar reflections about the meaning of life and the aspirations of the human soul. And most cultures give expression to those things in myth and narrative and story before they formulate them as theoretical philosophy. And so it, it stands to reason that when you look at the myths and legends of various cultures that you're going to find points of commonality because they emerge from the same common human experience. And one of the things that's not just Hinduism, not just Christianity, you find it across world religions is an expectation of uh, some future time of blessedness when people will be cured of ignorance. And that's part of the Catholic tradition as well. I mean, we hold that Adam had the preternatural gift of knowledge and that ignorance is one of the wounds of original sin and that faith uh, is a kind of infused quasi-knowledge uh, that we hold in darkness until the final revelation of Jesus and the beatific vision when we'll know God and all things uh, that we see in God's nature. So that expectation is, bi- I mean, it's understandable but people would aspire to f- the fullness of knowledge because our own ignorance... And the darkness of our intellect is a source of suffering for us, right? I mean, yeah. this is this undergirds Hinduism. It's very critical in the Buddhist idea of enlightenment. It's critical in uh, Platonic philosophy. The the allegory of the cave from uh, from of Plato's Republic is a myth of enlightenment. Uh, um, you know, illumination is considered the second stage of spiritual awakening in the Catholic mystical tradition. So these things are common. C.S. Lewis put it this way: he said that Christianity. Writes in capital letters what nature wrote, wrote with cribbed hand, <laughs> right? Um, and uh, some other resources that you might find interesting: Catholic reflection on world religion. Cardinal Charles Journet uh, wrote a book on the doctrine of grace, which, as it happens, is in the EWTN document library. Ah. Um, the last section of which is a reflection on what he calls uncovenanted graces, grace that falls outside the boundaries of the Catholic faith and the covenant community of Israel. Um, And uh, he analyzes, among other things, Upanishadic Hinduism and looks uh, for—and actually, I think the cult of Vishnu specifically looks for points of resonance and commonality between the Catholic understanding of grace and what might be present among non-Christian practitioners of other religions. Um, Another one would be— Cardinal Henri de Lubac, who I believe, if I read correctly, the French bishops have uh, have uh, are working towards his calls for canonization. Right ah. now. Don't okay. know if they'll get there, but I think that's the aspiration. Um, de Lubac wrote a lot about um, world religions, in particular about Buddhism in its omnidism uh, in the, the Pure Land tradition. And does some of the same things that Journet does
0: with with Hinduism. So that would be that would be an angle on
2: you know how Catholics might look
0: at world religions. Ravek, thank you so much uh, for your question, and thanks for watching us today on YouTube. Here's an email from Mark in Fort Myers, Florida. Dr. Anders, I'm working on getting an annulment. It's been well over a year since the priest and I submitted my paperwork. I have several questions as to why it would be taking so long, but I think the ultimate answer to those questions is just be patient. I did attend Mass on the weekend and daily Mass two and sometimes three times a week. So my immediate question for you today is, what can I participate in while at Mass? Can I make the sign of the cross? cross my forehead with holy water, etc. I know that I can't and don't partake of communion. I'm probably just being a little paranoid. Seems like the other parishioners kind of avoid me, so I tend to, or I want to hesitate to ask them their thoughts. I'm still a Protestant, but I hope to convert once the annulment is completed, Lord willing. Thanks, Mark. P.S., the priest who submitted my application has been reassigned to another church. The new priest is not familiar with my case just yet.
2: Okay, thank you so much. Uh, as to the first question, why is it taking so long? Uh, I don't remember what diocese we're, we're writing from. But Fort Myers. Fort Myers, yeah, yeah. So I don't know what the situation there is, but there are dioceses where there is but one canonist. Yeah. And, and he's got a stack of annulments on his desk that's a mile high, and mm-hmm. you might be two-thirds of the way up the stack, and he's just working through them one at a time until yep. he gets to yours. And that's very unfortunate, and I'm sorry, but that's uh, that's that's the way that happens in some situations. Sure. Um Now, what can you participate in? You're not confirmed in the Catholic Church yet, so uh, you can absolutely go to Mass, you can absolutely use holy water, you can absolutely engage in any devotional practice that you want. Sign of the cross? Absolutely. It's it's more like, what can't you do? The only thing you can't do um, is is partake of the sacraments, unless you're in danger of death. So you can't go to communion or confession yet. Um, but uh, but everything else is available to you and fruitful. So like it's not nothing, and you will you will sometimes hear Catholics talk as if the whole point of going to mass were going to communion, and that's just dead wrong. I mean it's just absolutely dead wrong. And the Church has never taught that, never held that. The point of going to mass is to offer the sacrifice. And Saint Paul says, "Offer your bodies as living sacrifices. This is your spiritual act of worship." And we unite the offering of our life. That would include this period of waiting and suffering and anxiety as, you, as you're as longing to enter the church and have been prevented, all of that can be offered as a prayer to God. That is more efficacious than an impious communion, by far. So we go to Mass to offer the sacrifice of our lives together with the sacrifice of Christ on the altar that the priest effects. Um, whether or not you receive communion, that is efficacious for your salvation. Um, in fact, Pius Twelfth said that the sacrifice of the Mass offered in this way is the most efficacious means oh. of attaining salvation. He didn't say the reception of Holy Communion. He said the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass is the most efficacious means of attaining salvation. And he means specifically this uh, this this commitment
0: of one's inner life to, to following God. Mark, thanks so much uh, for your email. We'll try to get through this one in the next uh, three minutes. <laughs> this is from James in uh, Chester, Virginia. Dr. Anders, I have gathered from your discussions of past episodes that heaven is not necessarily a planar existence for everyone that is those who live more saintly lives here on earth do enjoy a greater degree of heavenly exuberance than those who simply uphold the commandments to achieve their salvation they make it in quote under the wire so to speak am i correct in this synopsis and if that's the case does that same principle apply to hell is hell someplace like Dante described in his Inferno with varied canticles and with Judas and Caiaphas at the lowest levels with the highest measure of torment?
2: Yes, thank you. I appreciate the question. So, uh, heaven and hell are layered, that is correct, and, and star differs from star in glory, Scripture says, and so will we. Um, and we will be rewarded according to our works, and those... Uh, who've done great works will have great rewards, and those that have done few works will have few rewards. And Christ says the same thing about the damned. Those that have done great evil will be beaten with many blows, and those that have done little evil will be beaten with few blows. Uh, so Dante is right up till that point. Okay. Beyond that, everything in Dante is fiction. And so you should not imagine the kind of material circumstances in the afterlife the way Dante describes. That's just his own creative imagination
0: at work. Okay. Very good. And uh, James, thanks so much for your email. We'll go out with this one from Linda. When people say the Nicene Creed during Sunday Mass, it mentions one holy Catholic and apostolic church. What does that term mean, and can you explain the origins behind it?
2: Yes. Well, one church means that there there is but one. Right. All right. Um uh, holy means that the Church both is the source of holiness, so if you want to grow in holiness, you do so with the grace that comes from the Church, and that the Church is in fact holy, particularly in the persons of her saints. doesn't mean that every single individual Catholic is holy, right. um, except in the sense of set apart, uh, but in terms of sort of moral perfection, that would be the saints. Um, Catholic means that the Church is universal, so it's one Church, but say it's not just in Jerusalem. It's one Church that is of the whole world, yeah. right? In apostolic means that we have direct continuity with the apostles that Jesus sent out. So when Christ said to the apostles, go into all nations and make disciples, teaching them everything I've commanded you, and I'll be with you to the end of the age, that, that that promise is continuous in the present Catholic Church through the persons of her bishops and their collaborators, the priests. Any thoughts about the origin of that phrase? Any idea? Um, well, I mean, the, 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 the creeds basically come from... The practice of early Christian baptism, right? So the the bedrock origin of the creeds is in that experience. Early Christians had to
0: profess their faith before baptism, so they came up with these formula that Christians could say to say, hey, I'm one of those guys. Yeah. Linda, thank you so much for your email. Dr. David Anders, have a wonderful weekend. Thanks, Tom. Hope everybody has a wonderful weekend. We're looking forward to our next visit, and I personally hope that is on Monday right here on EWTN's Call to Communion. For Dr. David Anders, I'm Tom Price. Have that great weekend we're talking about. We'll see you on Monday. God bless.